one of the greatest Western movies ever made was High Noon, a black and white movie filmed in 1953 and starring Gary Cooper, who won an Oscar for his role as a middle-aged sheriff in a small Western town who was placed in a situation where he would have to face another gunman who had sworn to kill him or run. It was a classic drama built around an ages-old code of honor to stand and fight or to run and be branded as a coward, a code of honor that most women, bless their hearts, will never understand. Grace Kelly, in her first major role, played the sheriff's 23-year-old bride who threatened to leave him if he went through with it. The movie was accentuated continuously with the ticking of a clock that signaled high noon, the time at which the duel was to take place in the street. The film begins with a gang of four gunmen riding toward town, the clock ticking, and the sheriff putting the final touches on a letter marked, To be opened in case of my death. The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, very rare for a Western, which most critics scoffed at as being shoot-em-ups that embellished history. After all, there really weren't that many gunfights, and we didn't lose that many lawmen back then. Truth is, on the frontier, after the Civil War, with a sparse system of law and copious amounts of alcohol available, and not much else to do other than prospect, farm, gamble, or raise hell, gunfights were pretty common, and lawmen were getting killed routinely. Justice had a hard row to hoe on the American frontier, and it was costly. But justice had its heroes, just as the bad men had theirs, and some worked both sides. And from all these men grew legends and legendary gunfighters. There was a saying back in those days that went like this, God created man, but Sam Colt made them equal. This was high noon for Gary Cooper, one of the greatest Western movies ever made. We've seen this scene, or one like it, played out a hundred times in Western movies and TV shows, and it still grips us for some unknown reason. Men have settled their differences with weapons since the beginning of time, so why should this Western-style gunfight be any different? In reality, death is an ugly business, never clean, rarely quick. But there was a time, in the latter half of the 19th century, in a young frontier America, known as the Day of the Gunfighter. These men, who lived by the gun, became folklore heroes, popularized in magazines like the Police Gazette, Beatles' Dime Novels, and Harper's New Monthly, and in newspapers, in stories, and in song. In the time following the end of the Civil War to the late 1880s, these were the names that were talked about wherever people gathered to discuss the news of the day. Some were outlaws, some were lawmen, some operated on both sides of the badge. Their names often became legend, names like Wild Bill Hickok, John Wesley Hardin, who entered Huntsville Prison known as the fastest man alive and left 12 years later as a full-fledged attorney, but could never escape the shadows of his past. Jesse James, Billy the Kid, the mysterious Bill Mather, Ben Thompson, Harry Tracy, Wyatt Earp, Kid Curry, and Bass Reeves, to name a few. They lived by the gun and often died by the gun. In those days, you were either quick or you were dead.
I'm a long-time fan of westerns, the good ones. And by the good ones, I mean the ones that dealt with the West as it really happened. It's hard to find good western movies that portrayed life as it really was. For instance, I'm a John Wayne fan. But when Ricky Nelson or Glenn Campbell launched into a song in the middle of one of his westerns, and all the Indians attacking the cabin rode around it in circles, getting picked off one by one, instead of just waiting them out or setting fire to the place. Or the pioneer woman was portrayed by a Hollywood starlet wearing lipstick and 50s curls. You knew that it was time to change the channel. You've probably heard of The Lone Ranger, a series that started on radio and came to TV in the 50s. Most kids growing up in the 50s had no idea that a masked man riding a bright white horse and wearing a gray polyester jumpsuit really couldn't have survived long on the frontier. The outlaws and Indians might possibly have laughed themselves to death first upon seeing this strange sight. Yes, and there are some saying that the original Lone Ranger was really a brother from another mother, a tough Texas lawman named Bass Reeves, and we'll talk about him in this episode. I think I have read every book that acclaimed Western writer Louis L'Amour wrote, and at least 30 of those were turned into movies. For his contribution to American culture, he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by Ronald Reagan in 1982, along with Joe Lewis and band leader Fred Waring. His books are suitable for young readers who are allowed to read westerns, and those books give a fairly accurate portrayal of frontier life and hardship. Usually those movies inspired by Louis L'Amour books, including The Long Riders, The Quick and the Dead, and dozens of others, starred actors like Tom Selleck and gravel-voiced Sam Elliott, and many of those were well done. Lonesome Dove, written by Larry McMurtry, is a good portrayal of frontier life and did well in the movies and on TV. The Shootist with John Wayne was his last, and many say one of his best, realistic westerns. The movie Bad Company with Jeff Bridges. Tom Horn, starring Steve McQueen, and the subject of one of our two-part episodes at 1001 Heroes, is a great movie. Then Harry Tracy, with Bruce Dern, who I never forgave for killing John Wayne's character in The Cowboys. The Culpepper Cattle Company, another good movie. The Outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood. All are pretty good, but real life often differs from fiction, sometimes eclipsing it, sometimes following it fairly closely. These are the real stories of the men, good and bad, whose fast draw became legend in the American West. And in each case, I'll do my best to add something about them that serious followers of the West haven't yet heard. The newspapers and dime novelists called them pistoliers, bad men, or the term shootist, which was originated by New Mexico gunfighter Clay Allison. They came from every background imaginable. Billy the Kid, raised by a single mother who left New York City headed for the Kansas frontier. Bill Tillman, a deputy U.S. Marshal whose guns helped bring peace to the Indian Territory. Mysterious Dave Mather, an itinerant gunfighter and descendant of the notorious Salem witch hunter Cotton Mather, served as Marshal of several frontier towns. Bad Masterson, who was known as a fast gun, who later became a sports writer in New York. Wild Bill Hickok, who became a living legend and unwillingly gave us the poker term Dead Man's Hand, representing two pair, aces and eights, all black, which he was holding when he was shot from behind and killed in Nuttall in Man's Number 10 Saloon in Deadwood, Dakota. Ben Thompson, born in Nova Scotia, a Confederate cavalry officer, spy, major in Maximilian's Army, Indian fighter, and ruthless killer. Texas-born John Wesley Hardin, who by the age of 20 was one of the most feared gunfighters in the West, with a trail of dead bodies to show for it. Harvey Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry, from Montana, 
a violent killer that roamed with his three brothers and joined the Wild Bunch, robbing banks and eluding posses, until finally killing himself before the law could catch up with him. Wyatt Earp, the legendary lawman who rose to fame in Tombstone and was able to retire peacefully in California. Bass Reeves, a free black man who became the first U.S. Marshal west of the Mississippi. And Harry Tracy, the legendary outlaw of the Northwest who outwitted hundreds of lawmen and trackers on a long trek through Oregon and Washington, still called the greatest manhunt in American history. The first recorded stand-up gunfight between two men armed with holstered weapons took place July 21, 1865, in Springfield, Missouri. Wild Bill Hickok and Davis Tutt had been quarreling over cards and challenged each other to a gunfight. They arranged to meet on the town square and walk towards each other at 6 p.m. Wild Bill's armed presence caused the crowd to immediately scatter to the safety of nearby buildings, leaving Tut alone in the northwestern corner of the square. When they were about 50 yards apart, both men drew their guns. With the handguns that were available in 1865, 50 yards was a great distance. The single-action Colt revolvers of the West had to be cocked manually for each shot. Their ammunition was lead bullets propelled from black powder cartridges, which could miss fire and produced enough black smoke that many times a second shot was impaired by the cloud. The two fired at the same time, and Tut's shot missed, but Hickok's shot hit Tut in the heart, killing him instantly. This was the first recorded example of two men taking part in a quick-draw style duel. The following month, Hickok was acquitted after pleading self-defense. The first story of the shootout was detailed in an article in Harper's Magazine in 1867 and became a staple of the gunslinger legend. Hickok was known to exaggerate his exploits, but his fame was earned, first as a Civil War scout, later as an Indian fighter with Custer, and still later as a marshal of a number of wild cow towns. When the Civil War broke out, Hickok signed up with the cavalry as a civilian scout at Fort Leavenworth, taking part in the Battle of Wilson Creek. From 1867 to 1869, Hickok served as a deputy U.S. Marshal out of Fort Riley and as an Army scout under Custer. His Marshal's duties consisted of keeping the peace and escorting prisoners to Topeka. It was in this capacity that he met and became a close friend of William F. Cody, also known as Buffalo Bill Cody. In the winter of 1869, during a Cheyenne Indian attack that earned him a lance wound in the thigh, Hickok, at the age of 32, still recuperating, went to Chicago to visit an old friend of his named Herman Baldwin. Dressed in fringed leather and moccasins, he met Baldwin at the LaSalle train station, and they quickly headed for the nearest saloon. After several drinks, they decided to play billiards, during which Hickok's long hair and buckskins soon became the subject of jeers and comments. Several thugs gathered around Hickok and Baldwin and started fingering Wild Bill's buckskins, calling him Leather Breeches. Amidst roars of laughter, one of the men asked, Everybody from your part of the country wears rawhide and picks his teeth with a bowie knife? No, replied Hickok. But everyone where I come from knows who his father is. The gang's mood suddenly changed as they picked up cues and came at Hickok. The man who was known as one of the greatest fighters in the West could also handle a pool cue pretty well. The fight was over quickly with most of Hickok's tormentors sprawled on the floor bleeding, beaten, and defeated. The others ran out. Libby Custer, General Armstrong Custer's wife, had described Hickok this way. Physically, he was a sight to look upon, tall at six foot two inches, lithe and free in every motion. 
He walked as if every muscle was perfection, and the careless swing of his body as he moved seemed perfectly in keeping with the man, the country, and the time in which he lived. He was rather fantastically clad, but that seemed perfectly in keeping with the time and place. He did not make an armory of his waist, but carried two pistols. He wore top boots, riding breeches, and a dark blue flannel shirt with scarlet set in front. A loose neck handkerchief left his throat free. The frankly, manly expression of his fearless eyes and his courteous manner gave me a feeling of confidence in his word and in his undaunted courage. That year he had taken the job of sheriff of Ellis County, which included Hayes City, Kansas, and from the first night he took office, he was a target for would-be killers looking to make a reputation by killing a legend. A man named Sullivan jumped out of an alley and pointing his gun at Wild Bill's head said, I got you, Hickok, and now I'm going to kill you. Then he called for the people on the street to come and watch him kill Hickok. Hickok, staring down the barrel of Sullivan's gun, drew and fired, killing Sullivan with one shot as the onlookers stood and gasped. By 1871, Hickok was a living legend. He took a job as sheriff of Abilene, Kansas, as wild a cow town as ever graced the plains, and home then to gunfights, knife fights, murders, and sprees of every kind. Hickok pinned on the badge given him by Joe McCoy and, making the Alamo Saloon his headquarters, started patrolling the streets. There he had confrontations with Ben Thompson, John Wesley Harden, and countless others, until, after a gun battle in which he killed Thompson's partner, Ben Coe, he accidentally shot and killed his deputy, Mike Williams, who had rushed up behind him, unannounced, to help. From Abilene, Hickok drifted to Kansas City, Wichita, Topeka, Cheyenne, where he married Agnes Thatcher, who he had met years earlier in Abilene. But he couldn't stay long in any one place. He was soon headed for Deadwood, which, in the summer of 1876, was a booming gold camp. You all know the story of Jack McCall, who shot Hickok from behind on August 2, 1876, and was released by a miner's corps, which was preoccupied with an oncoming Indian attack, the next day. Justice finally did catch up with McCall, and he was tried and executed March 1, 1877. Born of English parents in Nova Scotia in 1843, then raised in Texas, Ben Thompson's skill as a gunfighter were unequaled in the West. Bad Masterson, who had worn the tin star in Dodge City during the wild years and seen Thompson in action, once said, It is doubtful whether in his time there was another man living who could equal him with a pistol in a life-and-death struggle. Men who knew Ben as a boy recalled him as bright, full of promise, and owning an explosive temper. He was 13 when he shot another youngster in a dispute over his marksmanship, leaving his friend picking birdshot out of his body while Ben managed to escape punishment for the deed. As a boy, he attended a private school in Austin, Texas, then became an apprentice printer, moving up to the New Orleans Picayune newspaper. One day, while riding a horse car, Ben noticed a young Frenchman trying to force his attentions on a young woman. Ben jumped in, there was a fight, and he threw the older man out of the cart. The Frenchman, Emile de Tours, later traced Thompson back to the newspaper and challenged him to a duel with pistols or swords. But Ben, as the challenged party, had the right by the code of dueling to choose his weapons, whereby the young Texan shocked de Tours and his seconds by insisting that they enter a darkened room with knives and that they fight to the death blindfolded. After some argument, de Tours agreed, and at dawn the next morning, they were both blindfolded, given a bowie knife, and guided into an abandoned ice house on the outskirts of the city. Then the door was locked on the outside. 
The seconds waited in tense silence until they heard a knock on the door. Ben, still blindfolded, stepped out. Behind him on the floor was Detour's slashed and lifeless body. Ben left New Orleans then for Austin, Texas, and soon was involved in another duel, this time a gunfight, with a known gambler and killer who had challenged him to a gunfight, and when the smoke cleared, the gambler was dead. Austin at that time was rough frontier, subject to constant Indian attacks from Comanche and Kiowa, who would raid smaller towns and carry off the women. During one such raid, five young women were captured by Apaches, and Ben joined the posse in pursuit. His guns brought down all but one of the Indians, and the girls were rescued. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Ben joined the 2nd Cavalry in San Antonio, and in Fort Clark, got in a brawl with a sergeant and a lieutenant, and killed them both. He spent the next year in and out of jail, and trouble followed him wherever he went. He escaped from jail and crossed the border, joining the regiment of Mexican General Tomas Mejia, where he fought as a paid mercenary in 1866 in Maximilian's army. But Maximilian's army soon fell, and Thompson was able to get out by way of Mexico City to Mazatlan, and then to San Francisco, where, sick with fever, he was nursed back to health at a convent. Returning to Texas, he was arrested, along with his brother Billy, and forced to serve two years at Huntsville. By 1871, he was released and went to Abilene, Kansas. Gambling houses, saloons, and brothels were open day and night, and Thompson was feeling lucky. Penniless, he pawned his six-shooter and sat in on a high-stakes poker game, winning $2,583, the equivalent of about $20,000 today. He soon made a friend in Phil Coe, who had some money as well, and was looking for an investment, so they combined their money and opened the Bull's Head Saloon, which was to be the most notorious gambling house and saloon in Abilene's history. Wild Bill Hickok was the law in town. In his autobiography, Thompson wrote, He wore a low-crowned wide black hat and frock coat. When I came along the street, he was standing there with his back to the wall and his thumbs hooked into his red sash. He stood there and rolled his head from side to side, looking at everything and everybody from under his eyebrows, just like a mad old bull. I decided then and there I didn't want any part of him. Ben and Wild Bill never had a confrontation, but tension mounted every night when the long-haired Hickok walked down Texas Street to enter the Bull's Head crowded bar. Thompson thought his troubles were over when John Wesley Hardin came to town with a herd. That young Texan's reputation as a killer had reached the cow towns, but instead of facing the young governor with a colt, Hickok wisely sat down with Hardin and over a drink made him promise not to embarrass the marshal during his stay in Abilene. A few nights later, Hardin killed a man in a fight and left for Texas. The bull's head was doing well, and Ben wired for his wife and family to join him, but tragedy struck them on their way, leaving his wife with an arm so badly crushed that it had to be amputated when their carriage overturned and his children were badly injured. Soon after he sold the saloon, Coe got in an altercation with Hickok and lost. After losing his best friend and with the injuries to his wife and son, Thompson was shattered. For the next few years he wandered, winning gunfights as they seemed to follow him, until the fall of 1879, when he was hired as the city marshal of Austin, Texas. He performed that duty well for four years, but had to resign after killing an old enemy. Jack Harris was a well-known Texas gambler and owner of San Antonio's Vaudeville Theater. Harris was laying for him at a local gambling hall, finger on the trigger of a sawed-off shotgun, when Thompson approached, but Ben shot him first, killing him before he could pull the trigger. 
Thompson was then treated to a hero's welcome back in Austin, but without his old job and with the gambling house failing, he began to pull off some erratic stunts. One example, he took a box at the Austin Theater when the traveling company was doing East Lynn, and at the peak of the melodrama, he stood up, cussing the villain, took out his six-shooter, and started firing at the actors, who dove behind the props, leaped into the audience, or fled into the wings. The theater emptied within minutes, leaving Ben shaking with laughter. He had loaded the gun with blanks. When a warrant was served on him, he showed up in court on horseback. His fame was now wearing thin in Austin. In 1884, Ben was lured back into the vaudeville theater in San Antonio, where he had killed Jack Harris by two friends of Harris, who ambushed Thompson from cover, killing him instantly. The entire city of Austin turned out for his funeral, including one wagon full of crying orphan children. It wasn't known until that funeral that Thompson, known as a killer to many, had been providing their clothes and food. We'll return to The Quick and the Dead right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Then there was Bass Reeves, the first black U.S. deputy marshal west of the Mississippi River, and a man who didn't back down for anybody or anything, including apprehending his own son for murder and bringing him in for justice. Born to slave parents in 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas, Bass Reeves would become the first black U.S. deputy marshal west of the Mississippi and one of the greatest unknown frontier heroes in our nation's history. Owned by a man named William Reeves, a farmer and politician, Bass took the surname of his owner, like other slaves of his time. Working alongside his parents, Reeves started out as a water boy until he was old enough to become a field hand. A tall young man at 6'2", with good manners and a sense of humor, George Reeves, William's son, later made him his personal companion when Bass was older. When the Civil War broke out, Texas sided with the Confederacy, and George Reeves went into battle, taking Bass with him. It was during these years of the Civil War that Bass parted company from Reeves, some say because Bass beat up George after a dispute in a card game. Others believe that Bass heard too much about the freeing of slaves and simply ran away. In any event, Bass fled to Indian Territory, where he took refuge with the Seminole and Creek Indians. While in Indian Territory, Reeves honed his firearm skills, becoming very quick and accurate with a pistol. Though Reeves claimed to be only fair with a rifle, he was barred on a regular basis from competitive turkey shoots. Freed by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and no longer a fugitive, Reeves left Indian Territory and bought land near Van Buren, Arkansas, becoming a successful farmer and rancher. A year later, he married Nellie Jenny from Texas and immediately began to have a family. Raising ten children on their homestead, five girls and five boys, the family lived happily on the farm. However, Reeves' life as a contented farmer was about to change when Isaac C. Parker was appointed judge for the Federal Western District Court at Fort Smith, Arkansas, on May 10, 1875. At the time Parker was appointed, Indian Territory had become extremely lawless as thieves, murderers, and anyone else wishing to hide from the law took refuge in the territory that previously had no federal or state jurisdiction. One of Parker's first official acts was to appoint U.S. Marshal James F. Fagan as head of some 200 deputies he was then told to hire. Fagan heard of Bass Reeves' significant knowledge of the area as well as his ability to speak several tribal languages and soon recruited him as a U.S. deputy. The deputies were tasked with cleaning up Indian Territory, and on Judge Parker's orders, bring them in alive 
or dead, working among other lawmen that would also become legendary, such as Heck Thomas, Bud Ledbetter, and Bill Tillman, Reeves began to ride the Oklahoma Range in search of outlaws. Covering some 75,000 square miles, the United States court at Fort Smith was the largest in the nation. Depending on the outlaws for whom he was searching, a deputy would generally take with him from Fort Smith a wagon, a cook, and a Native American posse man. Often they rode to Fort Reno, Fort Sill, and Anadarko, a round trip of more than 800 miles. Though Reeves could not read or write, it didn't curb his effectiveness in bringing back the criminals. Before he headed out, he would have someone read him the warrants and memorize which was which. When asked to produce the warrant, he never failed to pick out the correct one. An imposing figure, always riding on a large gray stallion, Reeves began to earn a reputation for his courage and success at bringing in or killing many desperados of the territory. Always wearing a large hat, Reeves was usually a spiffy dresser with his boots polished to a gleaming shine. He was known for his politeness and courteous manner. However, when the purpose served him, he was a master of disguises and often utilized aliases, sometimes appearing as a cowboy, a farmer, a gunslinger, or outlaw. He always wore two Colt pistols, butt forward for a fast draw. Ambidextrous, he rarely missed his mark. Leaving Fort Smith, often with a pocket full of warrants, Reeves would return months later hurting a number of outlaws charged with crimes ranging from bootlegging to murder. Paid in fees and rewards, he would make a handsome profit before spending a little time with his family and returning to the range once again. The tales of his captures are legendary, filled with intrigue, imagination, and courage. On one such occasion, Reeves was pursuing two outlaws in the Red River Valley near the Texas border. Gathering a posse, Reeves and the other men set up camp some 28 miles from where the two were thought to be hiding at their mother's home. After studying the terrain and making a plan, he soon disguised himself as a tramp, hiding the tools of his trade, handcuffs, pistol, and badge, under his clothes. Setting out on foot, he arrived at the house wearing an old pair of shoes, dirty clothes, carrying a cane, and wearing a floppy hat complete with three bullet holes. Upon arriving at the home, he told a tale to a woman who answered the door that his feet were aching after having been pursued by a posse who had put three bullet holes in his hat. After asking for a bite to eat, she invited him in, and while he was eating, she began to tell him of her two young outlaw sons, suggesting that the three of them should join forces. Feigning weariness, she consented to let him stay a while longer. As the sun was setting, Reeves heard a sharp whistle coming from beyond the house. Shortly after, the woman went outside and responded with an answering whistle. Two riders rode up to the house, talking at length with her outside. The three of them came inside and she introduced her sons to Reeves. After discussing their various crimes, the trio agreed that it would be a good idea to join up. Bunking down in the same room, Reeves watched the pair carefully as they drifted off to sleep, and when they were snoring deeply, handcuffed the pair without waking them. When early morning approached, he kicked the boys awake and marched them out the door, followed for the first three miles by their mother, who cursed Reeves the entire time. He marched the pair of the full 28 miles to the camp where the posse men waited. Within days, the outlaws were delivered to the authorities and a $5,000 reward collected. One of the high points of Reeves' career was apprehending a notorious outlaw named Bob Dozier. Dozier was known as a jack-of-all-trades when it came to committing crimes, as they covered a wide range from cattle and horse rustling to holding up banks, stores, and stagecoaches to murder and land swindles. 
Because Dozier was unpredictable, he was also hard to catch, and though many lawmen had tried to apprehend the outlaw, none were successful until it came to Reeves. Dozier eluded Reeves for several months until the lawman tracked him down in the Cherokee Hills. After refusing to surrender, Reeves killed Dozier in an accompanying gunfight on December 20, 1878. Although the tales of Reeves' heroics are many and varied, the toughest manhunt for the lawman was that of hunting down his own son. After having delivered two prisoners to U.S. Marshal Leo Bennett in Muskegee, Oklahoma, he arrived to bad news. His own son had been charged with the murder of his wife. Though the warrant had been lying on Bennett's desk for two days, the other deputies were reluctant to take it, and though Reeves was shaken, he demanded to accept the responsibility for finding his son. Two weeks later, Reeves returned to Muskogee with his son in tow and turned him over to Marshal Bennett. His son was tried and sent to Kansas's Leavenworth Prison. However, some time later, with a citizen's petition and an exemplary prison record, his son was pardoned and lived the rest of his life as a model citizen. In 1907, law enforcement was assumed by state agencies, and Reeves' duties as a deputy marshal came to an end. Next, Bass took a job as a patrolman with the Muskegee, Oklahoma Police Department. During the two years that he served in this capacity, there were reportedly no crimes on his beat. Reeves' diagnosis with Bright's disease finally ended his career when he took to his sickbed in 1909. He died January 12th, 1910, and though he was buried in Muskegee, Oklahoma, the exact location of his grave is unknown. Over the 35 years that Bass Reeves served as a Deputy United States Marshal, he earned his place in history by being one of the most effective lawmen in Indian Territory, bringing in more than 3,000 outlaws and helping to tame the lawless territory. Killing some 14 men during his service, Reeves also said, that he never shot a man when it was not necessary for him to do so in the discharge of his duty to save his own life. Many argue, including Bill O'Reilly's Legends and Lies 2015 television series, that there is evidence that Bass Reeves was the basis of the now classic radio and later television series The Lone Ranger, with several key similarities between the character and the real legend. A phantom figure of the plains rode the trails of the western United States, helping the agencies of law to bring peace to a lawless new land. It was the famous Lone Ranger, his identity unknown to anyone except his loyal Indian friend Tonto. Adventure always followed him in his exciting exploits. So let's thrill once again as we turn back many years to the wild and untamed west of old. The Lone Ranger rides again! The Lone Ranger is a fictional, masked, former Texas Ranger who fought outlaws in the American Old West with his Native American friend, Tonto. The character has been called an enduring icon of American culture. He first appeared in 1933 in a radio show conceived by WKYZ radio station writer Fran Stryker. The character was originally believed to be inspired by Texas Ranger Captain John R. Hughes, to whom the book The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray was dedicated in 1915. Further research indicates that on December 28, 1932, James Jewell sent a letter to Fran Stryker, a writer for George Trendle at WKYZ Radio in Detroit, suggesting he try three or four episodes covering the Wild West using a lone hero as the central character. Stryker adapted the character of the Lone Ranger from the character of a masked vigilante that appeared in the 10th episode of the then-current radio show called Covered Wagon Days. The radio series proved to be a hit and spawned a series of books, largely written by Stryker. 
an equally popular television show that ran from 1949 to 1957, comic books, and several movies. The title character was played on the radio show by George Seaton, Earl Grazer, and Brace Beamer. Clayton Moore acted the Lone Ranger on TV, although during a contract dispute, Moore was replaced temporarily by John Hart, who wore a different style of mask. On the radio, Tonta was played by, among others, John Todd and Roland Parker, and in the television series by Jay Silverheels, who was a Mohawk from the Six Nations Indian Reserve in Ontario, Canada. The name Tonto was literally plucked off the map from Tonto Basin, Arizona. John Wesley Harden, who once described himself as a warrior born of battle who belongs to no man, is credited with 40 killings in stand-up gunfights, ambushes, and running battles on horseback. That number is very likely accurate because whenever he rode out of a frontier town, he left dead bodies behind him. Wes, as he was called, was born May 25, 1853 in Bonham, Texas, and he received formal schooling in an academy established by his father, who was a circuit-riding preacher. He was a tall, slender, handsome boy, a natural-born leader who organized foot races, wrestling matches, and contests shooting at marks. We all carried guns in those days, he said later in his autobiography, appropriately titled Gunfighter. One day after school, Harden accepted a challenge for a wrestling match with a fellow student named Charles Sloter, who was older and bigger than himself. After Wes had pinned him down, Sloter drew a knife upon which a friend tossed a knife to Wes, and the pair went after each other. Sloter, bloody, broke away, running home, while Wes, also cut, washed up in a local stream. Sloter's parents protested to the local school board and sheriff, and Wes was questioned, then freed, when his fellow students testified that Sloter had come after him first. By the time he was 13, Wes had become a crack shot and an excellent hunter, and living in a pro-Confederate county in Texas, he had become a hater of all things having to do with the Union Army, and as far as he was concerned, the signing of the treaty at Appomattox meant nothing to him on the Texas frontier. In November of 1865, on his Uncle Barnett Hardin's sugar plantation, Hardin joined his uncle, several farmhands, and a cousin, Barnett Jones, in some festivities that celebrated the end of the cane harvest, and his cousin and he took on Uncle Holshausen's burly former slave, Major Mage Holshausen in a wrestling match, supposedly all in fun. The two boys were able to throw Mage twice, but the second time, Harden's ring scratched Mage's face, and the wrestling match turned into a fist fight, which was stopped by the spectators. Mage left, shouting threats. The next morning, riding home, Harden was accosted on the road by Mage, who was wielding a club, and Harden shot him. Harden wrote in his autobiography that he rode to get help for the wounded man, but he died three days later. He further wrote that his father did not believe he would receive a fair hearing in the Union-occupied state, where more than a third of the state police were former slaves. So his father ordered him into hiding. Hardin claimed that the authorities eventually discovered his location and sent three Union soldiers to arrest him, at which time he chose to confront his pursuers, despite having been warned of their approach by older brother Joseph. Hardin later wrote, I waylaid them as I had no mercy on Union soldiers. It was war to the knife for me, and I brought it on by opening the fight with a double-barreled shotgun and ended it with a cap-and-ball six-shooter. Thus it was, by the fall of 1868, I had killed four men 
and was myself wounded in the arm. Hardin knew he couldn't return home. As a fugitive, he initially had traveled with outlaw Frank Polk in the Pisgah area of Navarro County, Texas. Polk had killed a man named Tom Brady, and a detachment of soldiers sent from Corsicana, Texas, pursued the duo. Hardin escaped the troops, but Polk was captured. Hardin also briefly taught school in Pisgah. While there, he claimed he shot a man's eye out to win a bottle of whiskey in a bet. Hardin also claimed that he and his cousin Simp Dixon encountered a group of soldiers and each killed a man. On January 5, 1870, Hardin was playing cards with Benjamin Bradley in Towash, Hill County, Texas. Hardin was winning almost every hand, which angered Bradley, so he threatened to cut out his liver if he won again. Bradley drew a knife and a six-shooter. Hardin said he was unarmed and excused himself, but claims that later that night, Bradley came looking for him. Bradley allegedly fired a shot at Hardin and missed. Hardin drew both his pistols and returned fire, one shot striking Bradley in the head and the other in his chest. Dozens of people saw this fight, and from them there is a good record of how Hardin had used his guns. His holsters were sewn into his vest so that the butts of the pistols pointed inward across his chest. He crossed his arms to draw. Hardin claimed this was the fastest way to draw, and he practiced it every day. A man called Judge Moore, who held Hardin's stakes of money and a pistol, but refused to give them up without Bradley's consent, later vanished. By the fall of 1869, now at the age of 16, John Wesley Hardin had the reputation of being one of the deadliest gunfighters in southeastern Texas. Texas Governor Edmund J. Davis publicly vowed to have the young man killed, jailed, or hanged. Then he started a new division of manhunters and called them the Texas State Police. This group of ruthless manhunters turned out to be corrupt and a terror to most Texans. Hardin was one of their targets. He began to drift, and wherever he went, he left a trail of dead bodies behind him. In our story of Hickok, we mentioned his meeting with Wild Bill in Abilene, who offered him a drink and asked him not to make any trouble while he was in town. This is John Wesley Hardin's account from his autobiography. I have seen many fast towns, but I think Abilene beat them all. The town was filled with sporting men and women, gamblers, cowboys, desperados, and the like. It was well supplied with bar rooms, hotels, barber shops, and gambling houses, and everything was open. Before I had got to Abilene, I had heard much talk of Wild Bill, who was then Marshal of Abilene. He had a reputation as a killer. I knew Ben Thompson and Phil Coe were there, and had met both those men in Texas. I spent most of my time in Abilene in the saloons and gambling houses, playing poker, faro, and seven-up. One day I was rolling ten pins and my best horse was hitched outside in front of the saloon. I had two six-shooters on, and of course I knew the saloon people would raise a row if I didn't pull them off. Several Texans were there rolling ten pins and drinking. I suppose we were pretty noisy. Wild Bill Hickok came in and said we were making too much noise and told me to pull off my pistols until I got ready to go out of town. I told him I was ready to go now, but did not propose to put up my pistols, go or no go. He went out, and I followed him. I started up the street when someone behind me shouted out, Set up, all down but nine. Wild Bill whirled around and met me. He said, What are you howling about, and what are you doing with those pistols on? I said, I'm just taking in the town. He pulled his pistol and said, Take those pistols off. I'm arresting you. I said, All right, and pulled them out of the scabbard, but while he was reaching for them, I reversed them and whirled them over on him with the muzzles in his face, springing back at the same time. I told him to put his pistols up, which he did. 
I cursed him for a long-haired scoundrel that would shoot a boy with his back to him, as I had been told he intended to do to me. He said, Little Arkansas, you have been wrongly informed. I shouted, This is my fight and I'll kill the first man that fires a gun. Bill said, You are the gamest and quickest boy I ever saw. Let us compromise this matter and I'll be your friend. During the next four years from 1872 to 1876, Hardin took a wife, fathered three children, and still managed to get himself involved in the killing of another dozen men, most in separate incidents. Then he decided it was getting too hot for him in Texas, and he went back to Alabama, where he became a horse trader, stockman, and saloon owner, using the name of Jim Swain. Ironically, the real Jim Swain was a Texas ranger and a friend of Wes. By August of 1876, Hardin, his wife Jane, and his daughter Molly joined him in Alabama, but Jane's brother, who had his own problems with the law and had joined him in Alabama, stupidly wrote to his father Neil back in Gonzales County, Texas, revealing where the Hardens were living. Wes was dividing his time between his business in Pensacola, Florida, and his family in Alabama. Not long after, a young stranger named John Duncan appeared in town and said he was interested in buying the Bowen store and asked if he could stay a while to familiarize himself with the business. After a while, he did purchase shares in the business and became a trusted friend to the Bowens. But Duncan was actually a Texas ranger assigned to find John Wesley Hardin under the authority of Captain John Armstrong, who had sworn to capture Hardin. On a hot August day in 1877, Hardin, accompanied by an old friend named Jim Mann, boarded a train in Pensacola headed for Alabama. Without waiting for a court warrant, Armstrong surrounded the train with his rangers and a group of local law enforcement officers. Four of them, dressed as passengers, casually entered the smoking bar behind Hardin, and as the gunfighter sat down, they leaped on him, disarming him. Hardin's friend Mann, who was not wanted, ran down the station and was immediately riddled with bullets. Hardin was indicted for murder and sentenced to 25 years hard labor at Huntsville, of which he served 19, spending the time there studying law and writing to his wife and children. He had committed many sins, but the worst of all was what he did to his family. He wanted to make up for at least the damage he had done to them, although he could never make up for the men he had killed. He was finally pardoned in the spring of 1894, emerging from Huntsville a gray, pale, gaunt man, an anachronism of the wild days. He passed the bar and was now an attorney, but his world was very different. His former cow camps were now towns, and Austin, which had once fought off Indian raids, was a thriving city. El Paso and San Antonio now had trolley cars, brick houses, impressive stores, and public buildings. Rutherford Hayes had been president when he went in, and now, five presidents later, Benjamin Harrison was sitting in the White House. Wild Bill, Phil Coe, and Ben Thompson, all dead. His old friends were dead and gone. His children were grown up and had their own families, and his wife, Jane, had died while he was in prison. He met a woman named Callie Lewis, but that relationship died when her family broke it off, and he started frequenting the bars and gambling halls. He became irritable, tense, and overbearing, and got into politics, then went to El Paso, and started earning a good reputation as a criminal lawyer, but trouble soon followed him when he insulted the chief constable of El Paso, John Selman, who had a reputation as a very violent and proud man. On August 19, 1895, Selman went looking for Hardin and found him shaking dice for drinks at the Acme Saloon in El Paso. The once superb reflexes failed to sound the alarm for Hardin this time as Selman, standing behind him, drew his gun and shot Hardin in the back of his head as he raised his dice cup. 
Selman was charged with murder, but acquitted, then later killed in a gunfight with United States Deputy Marshal George Scarborough. Fast forward to Hollywood in 1927. The film industry was booming and about to make the change from silent films to talkies. One of the most popular themes was westerns, and to get any sense of reality, they needed men who had walked the walk back in the day. One of the men mentioned early in this episode had survived a number of ordeals, living a fabled life, a hero in his own time, and had come to Los Angeles, where he immediately became very interested in the business of western filmmaking. He became good friends with Western actors William S. Hart and Tom Mix. One director, whose name was to become legendary in Westerns, said that when he was a prop boy in the early days of silent pictures, this gunfighter would visit pals he knew from back in the day on the sets. I used to give him a chair and a cup of coffee, and he told me about those times. So in My Darling Clementine, we did it exactly the way it had been. When this director was working on his last silent feature, Hangman's House, in 1928, the gunfighter used to visit the set and became fast friends with a young prop boy who had gone to USC and was working on movie sets in the summer. They would spend hours over coffee talking about the old days in the West, the characters, the lawmen, and the gunfighters. The prop boy, whose name was Morrison, was offered a bit part in a Western and then a larger part until he was headlining in what they called B-Westerns. His gunfighter friend died in 1929 drawing the largest crowd of people ever gathered for a funeral in L.A. up to that time, people who wanted to pay their respects for that living legend. The young, thin man from USC worked for years in Westerns, becoming a star, and never forgot what he had learned from his friend, taking his way of talking and walking and merging it with his own style of toughness. The legendary Western gunfighter was Wyatt Earp. The prop boy turned screen star and legend in his own right was Marion Michael Morrison, known to all of us as John Wayne. In part two of The Quick and the Dead, we'll tell the story of Wyatt Earp, whose legend went far beyond Tombstone and the O.K. Corral, to the mining towns of California and Nevada, to the Klondike Gold Rush, and to Glendale, California. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our show is listened to in over 100 countries now, and that's all thanks to you. We survive on reviews, so we ask that you take a few minutes and write a review for us. Our new family show needs reviews as well. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales is at iTunes and all the other podcatchers. Or you can find it at our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com. And for those of you who don't have Apple, who are Android, just try podbay.fm. Search for either one of our shows. Just search 1001. Both of our shows will come up. And subscribe. Subscribing is free, and that will go into your favorites. And then you'll be able to receive reminders every time we post a new episode. At our website at 1001storiespodcast.com, just look for the Storytellers box at the upper right and click on that. All our new 1001 Classic Short Stories episodes are there. And you'll find a great selection of short stories that can be enjoyed and discussed on the next family car trip. Stories like The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen and The Last Fight in the Coliseum by Charlotte Young and many others. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.